Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. This is the weekly podcast, the live show takes place when I do the live shows, and this is the podcast equivalent. And today, if it's okay with any of you listening to this, I'm going to reflect on character in politics because it seems to me that character is absolutely fundamental to where we are with Brexit and where we're going to go next. Now, before I reflect on character, specifically the character of Theresa May and to some extent Jeremy Corbyn, let me say I'm a sceptical figure when it comes to focusing on character in politics. Often there are deeper currents that explain what goes on from Thatcherism to Blairism to whatever. Uh, The character of any given individual, any prime minister, is only part of a much wider context in which they make their moves and without understanding the context, the character is almost irrelevant. I always remember when um, Michael Foote was leader of the Labour Party and he was being interviewed by Brian Warden. It's a terrible time, you know, 20 points behind in the opinion polls. And Brian Warden said to Michael Foote, don't you think that the uh, times are out of joint in the Labour Party, implying there was something absolutely fundamental wrong with the Labour Party as there was with the Denmark in which Hamlet made his agonised moves. And of course, Michael Foote, who has read every book under the sun and every Shakespeare play knew off by heart, immediately responded by saying, oh, cursed spite that ever I was asked to put it right, which of course was one of the Hamlet lines, not the precise quotation, I think, but close to it. So, to understand any leader, including, incidentally, Michael Foote's tortured leadership of the Labour Party. The wider context always has to be taken into account. Something was rotten with the Labour Party in the early 80s, and it was his curse, Michael Foote's curse, that great bibliophile and writer of such beautiful elegance. It was his curse that he was asked to put it right, and when... People analyse those three years and the slaughter in the 83 election, a wider context matters. But I think in a way in the current drama, the Brexit drama that historians will look back at in 500 years' time with bewildered fascination, the character of Theresa May is underplayed because she is surrounded with slightly misleading cliches about how weak she is, how vulnerable she is. Like all cliches, they are true, but only a part of the picture. She is also utterly willful, unyielding, in a way quite remarkable for a modern prime minister, much more so than, say, Margaret Thatcher, who could behind the facade of screeching certainty, be quite flexible and deft at times, Theresa May sets a course and sticks with it, whatever happens. And it seems to me that this character is what is defining Brexit, irrespective almost of the external constraints which are 
obviously huge. Divided cabinet, divided parliamentary party, a hung parliament, and all the other things. She just plows on. She learnt this technique, I think, at the Home Office, where she was justifiably proud of being the longer-serving Home Secretary. When she targeted certain policy objectives, she stuck to them. When she opposed some things that other Cabinet members were trying to impose on her, she opposed it and usually prevailed. She just kept going at the Home Office. And so it is, it seems to me, with Brexit. The strategy she's got is brutally clear. She is going to stick with a deal with some limited variation, depending on what she can get out of the European Union. And as people said before that vote, which she lost by over 200, a a trauma, this was on her original deal, a trauma that would have, I think, drained any other Prime Minister of all confidence. Uh, I was thinking, you know, after such a a defeat, what, say, a Blair or a Brown would have done. And, you know, there would have been emergency meetings. Blair would say, Alistair, how do we present this as a triumph? We've lost by 200. What do we do? And Gordon Brown said, get me Peter, get me this. What are we going to do? Who do I phone? There would have been a sense of near-terminal panic. The same, incidentally, with Cameron, who was a sort of shadow of a kind of Blair-type figure. She just carried on. She started having meetings with the DUP and Rhys Mogg and that group as if nothing really had happened. The same old dynamic, appearing to appease the Brexit hardliners, going back to Brussels to seek more changes, saying she's battling for Britain. All the um, things that she had said before when she negotiated the backstop, which she said was absolutely fundamental, off she goes again. I don't think for one moment she considered resigning. I don't think for one moment she thought that such a calamitous defeat reflected badly on her leadership. She just pressed on. And it's clear to me that she's going to press on uh, for as long as possible uh, until a variation of her deal is the only option on the table, the other one being no deal. And the House of Commons is, in theory, powerful enough to stop her. But they are not, this House of Commons, anywhere near as willful as she is. She, I think, believes in this Brexit. I no longer think you should see Theresa May as a Remainer who is a reluctant Brexiteer. I certainly don't think you should see this Brexit deal that she's negotiated as the product of Ollie Robbins, the senior civil servant who has, poor sod, has had to do all this negotiating sleeplessly for months. This is her vision of Brexit, with the end of free movement at the absolute centre of it. She clearly has a thing about immigration and immigrants and she wants to put a stop to it and her deal does that and so it's all about her her vision of a Britain or certainly an England I think based on her upbringing 
her maidenhead constituency. And it doesn't mean on economic matters she is to the right of Cameron and Osborne. She is, as I've said in other podcasts, to the left of them on economic matters because she sees the value of government and the power of the state to intervene as a benevolent thing. But socially, she is a conservative and a big C and a small C conservative. And when she sacked George Osborne and said that he didn't know the Conservative Party and he should get to know the Conservative Party better, I suspect that is what she meant. That he was a metropolitan liberal, whereas her view of the Conservative Party was more provincial and conservative. And so when people say as a matter of strategy, May puts the Conservative Party before country. Again, I don't think she thinks strategically. She conflates the two, and it's a dangerous conflation. The Conservative Party and its unity and its um, force as she sees it, she believes is absolutely at one with the interests of the country. And when she started wooing the DUP and the Brexit hardliners, I don't think it was entirely a strategic decision to see whether there was a route through which keeps the Conservative Party together. I think in the end she feels a greater belief in that route. Now there are problems with that because she's smart enough to understand that the Irish question is not yet resolve this mythology about technology and all the rest of it she sees through but she is against free movement with a passion that exceeds many brexiteers who fought against uh, staying in the eu like michael gove johnson who in their time have been quite pro free movement she is against and so she moves naturally to Rhys Mogg and others, as she seeks some new version of her deal, because that chimes with her own pretty hardline convictions. The dilemma, the personal dilemma that she faces, is that her genuine commitment to no new border in Ireland conflicts with all her other equally deeply held, passionate beliefs in ending free movement and the rest. And she can't resolve that. Now, one way that she could is to accept Corbyn's offer of a customs union and the vaguely defined close alignment to the single market. Now, this offer from Jeremy Corbyn is quite a smart one. There is a majority in the House of Commons for something along those lines. There's certainly a majority in the House of Commons for membership of the Customs Union. The or a doesn't really matter. It will be very similar. And probably there's a majority for close alignment with the single market. But Corbyn has made his move very late in the day. And she is probably right to view it with suspicion in the sense that if Corbyn was absolutely committed to this route he should have been working with other MPs from other parties from months ago he first outlined this policy uh, almost a year ago 
he made a speech in um, the spring of last year where he spelt this out vaguely, but the parameters were there. And then, somewhat characteristically, he did very little about it and rarely mentioned it and anyway doesn't give many interviews and doesn't really engage in dialogue with MPs, certainly from other parties. So it just kind of hung there until this latest detailed letter that he wrote, which, as I say, is quite smart. It obviously presents a dilemma to those of us who believe with plenty of evidence to back it up that staying in the European Union is about a thousand times more preferable to that option and about 10,000 times more preferable to the May option and about 20,000 times more preferable to crashing out with no deal. But in the context in which Corbyn operates, which uh, again comes down to his character, it was a smart move made far too late. Corbyn's character, I think, is quite multi-layered on this one. He is fundamentally a devotee of Tony Benn, as I've said again on this podcast. Brexit is so overwhelming, you start repeating yourself like a maniac. But anyway, to understand Corbyn, you don't need to read Trotsky or Marx. You need to understand the politics of Tony Benn, to whom he was utterly committed. You know, he used to go to Tony Benn's speeches, and I could see him spellbound, uh, understandably, because Ben was a brilliant orator. And Tony Ben, of course, was against the common market as it was then, and then the European Union. And Jeremy Corbyn, I think, feels it his mission to deliver Tony Ben's agenda. And I think he thinks of Tony Ben a lot, as he finds himself in this extraordinary position that he never, ever dreamt he would ever be in, leader of the opposition, leader of the Labour Party. So part of him thinks, here it is on a plate. I didn't even call this referendum, and we're leaving the European Union. That's what Tony wanted on grounds of parliamentary sovereignty, the accountability of the European Commission, and all the rest of it. So there's a bit of him that still feels that. But I think also Corbyn has shown himself in this new position to be pragmatic. He campaigned for Remain, and although he didn't do so with the gusto that uh, the pro-European wing of the Labour Party ached for him to do, he did it. And I believe him. He's just not capable of lying or, or being evasive in a way that many Labour leaders have had to be over Europe in the past. It's both admirable and a flaw that he can't do guile, political guile. So when he says he voted Remain, I think he did in that referendum. Betty didn't go into that ballot box and vote out, although we'll never know. But I believe him when he says he voted Remain. So he was pragmatic enough to realise that as leader of a pro-European party, he had to campaign for Remain. And as someone who has made such a thing about mass membership, he has still to hold out that option of a referendum. But in a way, this whole focus on the so-called people's vote, I think in some ways has diverted focus from the end game, 
this whole Brexit debate has been completely muddled between means and ends. And so a lot of the debate in the House of Commons is about means. Should we extend Article 50 by a few months? Should we rule out no deal and so on? Very little of it has been about ends. And one of the reasons why the willful may remains in such a strong position is that she's the only one putting something down on the table, a detailed end, her deal. We now have the other option, belatedly and finally, the Corbyn option of the customs union and close single market relationship, etc. But it is not a detailed deal like hers. And I think the Remainers have been so diverted by the focus on putting the case for another referendum, which they did really, really well. I remember in the summer it looked like a distant fantasy and by the late autumn looked quite likely. But the end, Remain, has been completely obscured. The benefits of Remain are rarely hailed as they should be on a regular basis. I remember one of the many surreal days of this Brexit drama when the government published its own forecasts showing that uh, growth would not be as high with May's deal, with no deal it would be catastrophic and so on. Where was the cry that the Remain option would have led to much higher growth? On the government's own figures, the government opting for a route that will make us poorer uh, relative to what it could be if we stayed in. But it wasn't. It was all, let's have a people's vote. And in the House of Commons, when Remainers stand up, they always say, what about putting it to the people? And May has an easy answer. She just says, we've already done that. And we're carrying out the will of the people in 2016. She will have far fewer answers if the substance of the case was made. But it isn't very often. Which brings me to the third kind of element of character, a collective character, the current House of Commons. Each time there is a sort of Brexit debate in the House of Commons, I kind of get quite excited, like, you know, a World Cup final or the Wimbledon final. You think, oh, wow, yeah, sit down and watch this. It's going to be game-changing and intoxicating and historically significant. And not much happens. This is a weak House of Commons. It's a House of Commons crammed with MPs who regard themselves almost as delegates of their constituency. So their argument quite often is, well, look, you know, our constituents voted to leave, therefore we must leave. As if that is an end in itself. And even the hardline Brexiteers in the Tory party quite often advance the case that their members want out, so let's just get on with it. This is kind of weak, weak arguments. This is not the House of Commons of the Norway debate in 1940, which ended after two days of brilliant speeches from heavyweight politicians, ended with the resignation of the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. This is really... I'm afraid very mediocre. We've got a House of Commons because of the fashion for localism, which is wholly understandable and in one way admirable. We've got a House of Commons full of MPs who are more assiduous constituency MPs probably than any House of Commons ever. 
but it's the weakest House of Commons when contemplating these great historic national issues where weighty experience, the capacity to understand multi-dimensional complexity from the nature of a trade deal to uh, where sovereignty lies in a kind of interdependent world and all these kind of things. Um, some of them just haven't got it in them to frame an argument that makes sense of the complexities. Some of them, I think, believe as a matter of principle that because voters voted in a particular way in 2016, they just have to deliver it come what may. Some of them utter the cliché, my voters are saying we just need to get on with it. And even though they know that getting on with it is the last thing that will happen if and when Theresa May's deal gets through, um, they feel they haven't got the capacity to challenge this misleading cliché. And so you have the willful Theresa May determined to deliver on her deal, which is the product of her vision, her interpretation of what the Brexit referendum signalled. You have Jeremy Corbyn, equivocal, ambiguous, a committed Benite, forced to be pragmatic because of his position as leader of the Labour Party, and the weakest House of Commons in modern times. So even though Theresa May is a prime minister in the weakest context of modern times, said at the beginning, hung Parliament through her own fault of losing the Tories' majority in the election she called, a cabinet where you have people like Amber Rudd, David Gork, Philip Hammond, warning her about the horrors of no deal, and others in her cabinet saying they'll resign if there's any customs union. And by the way, some of those doing that are people who were campaigning for Remain in the referendum. They're shifting pathetically because of the state of the Conservative Party. And so she, although in that apparently almost terminally fragile position, is the one who is prevailing again and again. And each time the House of Commons threatens to hinder her, impede her own interpretation of Brexit, it concedes and gives her the space to move on. A House of Commons that wouldn't vote for the Yvette Cooper Amendment, which would have given just a bit more time, which is part of the sort of frenzy of the moment, the lack of time, House of Commons too scared to do that and those Labour MPs who voted against that amendment because their constituents want them to get on with it. Uh, a phrase, it's like seizing back control, utterly deceptive. That House of Commons, in the end, probably will let her get her way. And there will be, because she is ruthless and willful, and self-absorbed enough to keep this going until the last possible moment where the option becomes her deal or no deal, I think the House of Commons will vote for a variation of her deal. 
there will be Brexit parties at that point, even if more time will be required. This isn't going to happen by the end of March. There will be kind of Brexit parties in parts of the country, and then they will wake up and realise that virtually nothing has been decided. And there will be years of negotiation still to come about future trading arrangements and the rest. She is the most willful, ruthless, determined figure. And by the way, don't feel sorry for her. People say, I feel sorry for her. She's wanted to be prime minister. She will stay there as long as she possibly can. It is her life, the Conservative Party, and this job which um, so many ache for and few get. And she's not going to give it up in a hurry. Now, of course, anything could happen. The Customs Union, which has a majority in the House of Commons, might become an option. And in the event of MPs becoming willful and turning their will and determination to doing what's best for the country, Remain could come into the picture again. I mean, I would prefer, as I've said here before, Article 50 to be revoked, could be done tomorrow and an honest debate where Parliament asserts what's in the national interest to follow. But that's not going to happen by miles. But clearly all options are still around. But look at who has the cards and who is most determined to play them, May. Look at all the other moving parts. And so far, their puny inability to frame an argument to be brave in explaining to their constituents that they take a different view to them and it seems to me that there is one route more likely than the others but we'll have to see thank you very much for listening oh yeah we usually say don't we all the podcasts uh, say this that my next show's uh king's place in march uh, I think uh, one sold out months ago. The other we put on in a response to that sellout is almost sold out. There are a few tickets. And I'll see you very soon here on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to another Brexit episode. Brexit.